as leaders, when we work with others, we don't know the impact that we're going to have. That impact may not be immediate. It may not impact your organization the way that you thought it would. You're always mentoring somebody, cheering them on, looking for ways to serve them in their life. Did they did they gain something through their association with you and your team? Did it improve their life in some way? Were they led well or were they managed? Was it something that they can look back with fondness and say, that was a huge stepping stone for me in my life? I hope that leaders are looking at their stewardship as a leader, that they're responsible to take care of the people that are in their charge, to help them grow and progress, not just at work, but in their life through their example, through their way of being and what they, how they engage that human being. I always want to leave better than I started. And I also want people to leave better than they started in the collaboration that we have together. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Pursuit of Purpose. Today's guest is Art McCracken. Art is a high-performance coach, a photographer, and a fellow podcaster. Above all else, Art will tell you he's a father and a husband. He joins Chris on this episode to discuss the role of leaders in every meaning of the word and shed some light into his world as a consultant. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, Art. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on today. I appreciate you taking the time to have a conversation. Sure. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So can you give everybody a, uh, a I don't know, 60-second, uh, maybe two minutes intro of who Art McCracken is? Sure. Uh, glad to. Uh, first and foremost, I'm a husband and a father. I always mention that first because that's the most important thing to me in my life. Uh, outside of that, I do a lot of professional coaching and consulting across a, a various set of industries. Uh, most of my work is most of my work's, I guess, tilted towards high-performance coaching for executives and their teams. And so the work that I do in that space is pretty diverse and interesting uh, in its own right. But uh, my calling is people experience living true. And so everything that I do in my life is representative of that and what that means to me. Awesome. Um, one thing I always ask people because I'm in the marketing world and I find brands very interesting. So this is kind of just an off-topic warm-up question. But what is the first brand that you remember being connected to? The very first brand I ever remember that maybe stood out to me was an eyeglass or an eyewear company called Varney. And I just remember that my friend that was my neighbor at the time, he was older than I, and I thought he had these really cool sunglasses. And I remember asking him what, what they were and where could I find them? And he told me the brand and I remember looking at it and, being like, whoa, that's uh, that's more money than I have to spend on sunglasses. But I, I remember that and, and thought, man, those are cool glasses. I want to have those. So That's awesome. Varney, I'll have to look those up. I haven't heard of those. Um, do you do you own a pair yet or you you, you never jumped on the I, wagon? I, I think I owned a pair at some time uh, in my life, maybe when I was in high school or something. And by that time, they probably weren't even cool anymore. That's when Oakley was really coming onto the scene and mm. that replaced that pretty quick. So I'm sure I had a pair at some time. Awesome. Um, and what was your first job out of school? My first job coming out of uh, school, college career, I would say is uh, banking. I was a commercial lender and my specialty was troubled asset portfolio management. So I would work with uh, some of the bad loans at the bank that had gone south that were large uh, credits that the bank was carrying on their books that they were trying to figure out how to work out and also uh, good sized commercial clients. And I worked for three different banks uh, early in my career, both uh, from a small local bank to regional and a national bank. And that's where I started my career, a degree in corporate financial management. So that fit right into that. Interesting. So did the uh, you obviously developed some skills in the financial world at the banks, but then you jumped into corporate financial management, you said? Yeah. Um, early in my career, I had the opportunity to do some consulting for a, a friend of our family's. Uh, he had come to me and asked if I would be willing to take on a project for him that was really the, it was the groundwork research and 
programming for a multi-specialty ambulatory surgery center. And I didn't know anything about it, didn't know what I was doing, uh, but I was willing to do the work. So I was working full-time at the bank. I was moonlighting uh, early morning, late at night, trying to do the research for this surgeon investor group on how they could run this center and how it needed to be set up, what the accreditation process was, and working with contractors and vendors to get up and running. And so that was one of my first real projects in consulting and advising in a space that really I had no clue. I, I didn't know anything about it, but I was willing to dive in and find out what that industry had and, and learn from others. And so that kind of launched my career. I left banking and that launched a career in uh, consulting, took on a number of projects similar to that. Spent a lot of time in the medical professional space, working with uh, practice owners and specialists, uh, working to grow their businesses and enhance their team's performance and their personal performance. And so it was kind of never looking back from there and uh, started to do a lot of strategic work and private coaching for individuals. And that's been a nice uh, 20, 20 plus year career. I never had to market my business. It's always been word of mouth based on uh, how well we've done as, as clients and collaborators together. And so it's been a real fun career. Cool. So I have, I'm going to come back to some of the things that you mentioned, but I, yeah. you're the calling that I've listened to several episodes and you mentioned this and, um, I've heard you say a number of different times your calling of people experience living true. The I I sat and I looked at those like I wrote those words down and I tried to like understand the I even shared it with my wife. She's a grammarian. I am not. And she was like, I'm not sure that I that that's that I, she was, we're trying to understand what it means. And I think I have it, but I want you to just break down what what does that how, what do you mean? Uh, people experience living true? What does that actually mean? Uh, for me personally, uh, living true is is moving out of a space of hypocrisy, out of duality, uh, really owning the individual identity in which I believe uh, that I am and I'm working to become, uh, not operating from a place of non-apology, but really just living my truth. And I had a, a season in my life where that wasn't the case. And I knew what that was like. I was always looking over my shoulder. I was always anxious. I was trying to be one way at work and a different way at home and a different way with my friends. And I had uh, selfish desires that were very, very self-serving, uh, that were harming the relationships that I had. I found that I was teaching and guiding clients on a certain way of life, and I wasn't living those principles or values. And so it was a place of high dissonance, I would say, is a place where you're not living true and moving from high dissonance into resonance and a place of fluidity, a place that is representative of, of the real identity in which we possess and which we're trying to become and being completely vulnerable and open in the relationships that we have and pledging ourselves in the service of others in that journey. And so for me, when I made that switch, and it was like flipping a switch, I went from not living true to myself and to others, to having a life of high integrity and, and living everything every day uh, in the best, most capable way that I could. And so for me, the, the life change that comes with that and, and the experience of moving into a place of I mentioned vulnerability. I would say it's high risk. I think living true is expensive. It means saying yes to very specific things, and it means saying no to a lot of things. And when you when you get to that place of, of really understanding who you are and the contribution that you can bring to others and not trying to fake it, a question that I often ask my clients is, where are you faking it in your life? Where are you not showing up true to yourself and true to others? And so for me, that's what living true is, is owning that identity. And so when I say my calling is people experience that, I'm not going to do that for others. I'm not going to perpetuate that in others. I just will live my own life and my own truth. And my hope is that others will experience that for themselves. And I hope that through my efforts and my career and my way of being and my example, 
that others might see that and feel that through their association with me and that they'll explore that themselves. Gotcha. So it's more or the your call or I'm going to say this in my own words, a little expanded, but you exist to have as many people in the world experience what it is like to not live in duality and just be who you are every day, 24 seven. And that's what you are doing. And through you doing that living out in your life, that that is spread to others. Is that correct? And they do the same? Yeah, I I think so. And I think a big part of that is is being willing to let a, a big bulk part of your selfish desires that are so inward focused to let those go and actually show up in a way that you're having an impact and influence on those around you. And it doesn't mean you let your, your desires go, but it certainly uh, curbs your, your appetite for the things that don't serve. Gotcha. Um, Yeah, no, I think that that's uh, I, the dual, because the living true didn't resonate with me that phrase but then when you described uh duality that's something that i uh can definitely relate to of just feeling um i feel like it was amplified more and i think this is probably true for most people in high school and college Mm -hmm. and then there's i my opinion is that certain people linger or that stays with people longer than others some people yeah. are able to like snap out of it quickly or maybe they were fortunate enough to never ha- experience that but then depending upon how aware you are of that you may stay in that for your entire life or career um and never you know realize it or at the last minute you know late in late late in life you realize that you've been living kind of a uh, a lie i guess is what yeah. my thought is very much so and I'm wondering, so the thing I was curious about is the, the fi- this is maybe a stereotype of financial gurus, but was there a piece of you being like engrossed in corporate banking and everything that like, it's like almost if you look at all the different things that in your life that have created who you are today or the experiences that caused you to start thinking or exploring or researching um, certain trains of thought. I wonder, did did the corporate world and the finances in particular or just the management of money kind of drive you towards uh, this other deep, like, yeah, the living true stuff that you are about now? Does that make sense? So it's like you were, you were surrounded or engrossed in like uh, the optimization, I would call it, of financial like plans for businesses. And there was like a, a hole there. Is that safe to say? Or am I, I could be like digging into something that I'm just like fabricating for myself. But. <laughs> I, I think there certainly is some corollary. I look back in my life and other jobs that I've held and I, I actually started to pursue um, a career in medicine before I ended up switching majors and, and moving over into the field of finance and business. And part of my draw to even medicine was the fast-paced, high-risk, high-urgency of decision-making and solving for problems. And so as I, I eventually ended up back in a lot of medical and professional space, but I think the, the corollary for me, especially when it comes to finance and business, is the analysis and study of the financial reports, key metrics, trend analysis, there's always a story there. And even working with some of the clients early on in in commercial banking, there was always a story, there was a pathway, there was a strategic plan, there was something that they were trying to solve for immediately and trying to fix. And so for me, even as I moved into consulting, it, it carried forward that there's there's some story that's being played out here. It's creating thoughts and feelings and emotions around this story that's being written. There are habits, there are certain outcomes that may be desirable or not desirable. And how are we going to get in and figure out a way to change the outcomes so that they're more aligned with the the goals and objectives of the client or the team and so that pr- constant problem solving and, and looking at the numbers and looking at the facts and surveys and assessments 
they all come full circle into understanding more of what's going on and taking all those bits and pieces and building a foundation for growth. Yeah, the uh, that's, um, I feel like the one part, so my in my background, I'm from engineering and then I tried out engineering for six months and I absolutely hated it. It was like not creative at all. Um, and I just jumped into, uh, at the time starting my own business and, um, which ended up becoming a marketing company, but I still approach everything that I do today from this super analytical, like I'm all about dashboards, metrics, KPIs, trying to understand and break everything down to like formulas. But then at the end of the day, and I don't know if this is in line with what you're saying or not, like you can have all these metrics and, um, indicators of things but it always comes back to now you're everything is run by people (laughs) so now you have to have the emotional intelligence to understand what's driving the people that you're managing so that you can actually affect those numbers because the numbers are just the result of whatever the people are doing in the business that makes sense yeah absolutely and you bring up a great point there Um, business is people and a lot of times i think industries and different business owners forget that. And there is a fine balance between the quantitative and qualitative side of a business. There's a fine balance between the hard skills and soft skills. You mentioned emotional intelligence. You can find that there are organizations that are low level maturity when it comes to emotional intelligence and thus it complicates the outcomes that they seek. Oftentimes they're getting in the way of their own uh, results and they wonder why they're challenged uh, when you look at the culture of an organization and their way of existence or the way they do things around their business it always has some sort of impact when it comes to the stakeholder chain and uh, consumer uptake market presence and so it's it's weaving those things and always understanding the business as people and if we understand people and we understand Uh, engagement on others terms not necessarily our own that we don't become one-sided in our in our offers in the marketplace that it starts to create uh, maybe a little bit more fluid and and more sticky presence than other companies might go through or experience and that thing that you mentioned about the fact that we are we're, we're in business we're working with imperfect human beings in an imperfect environment that has no guidebook. Uh, there's thousands of leadership books and business books that are written, written every year. If somebody had it figured out, there'd be one book, one model that always produced the same result. But because humans are evolving and situational analysis and adaption are something that happens in a unique way and with all of the moving parts and personas and temperaments that exist in those spaces, it certainly produces a, a varied ecosystem for choice and that's I, th- I think that a lot of times business owners don't realize how much of an organism exists within their organization hmm. what's something that so you've been doing uh high performance coaching now for how many years uh, a number of years i i've been a certified high performance coach now for about six years uh outside of that i've done a lot of uh, work in the ICF space, which is an international coaching federation with some training and continuing education in that space. And then uh, adapted coaching models uh, from just a lot of experience with human beings and what that looks like. And, you know, at the essence, if you look at coaching on a continuum, a lot of people think if I hire a coach, they're going to tell me what to do that gets into more training and advisory type work. True coaching is question-based only. It's coming in with the assumption that the client has everything that they need, that they're well, that they can operate uh, and function towards the, the goals and aspirations that they're having or that they have in their life. But in, in the facilitated process of coaching, it's giving and framing the right question for the client to spend time with and make choices around. And so it requires a great discipline to be a good coach um, because we have so much experience and our own bias and our own 
perspectives and experiences in life that we want to guide somebody and, and help them not make mistakes or or try to fix something that we believe may be broken or complicating their life. Uh, when in reality, the greatest breakthroughs and the greatest outcomes really happen when things break down and somebody has got to work with those challenges and assess them on their own level, ask themselves questions, dive into what those answers might be and start to try new things and develop new habits. And so it's very, uh, I have a high reverence for that process, high reverence for the work that people do when they're engaged in personal growth. Uh, it's not a, it's not always a fun place to be because we face some of our own demons and some of our own setbacks and, and historic habits that have riddled our progress for years and to open ourselves up to what the possibilities might be and then pledge ourselves to the work that we've not been willing to do in the past is it's a really cool place to see people spend their time and energy with. So this is this this is super interesting to me because so right now I manage um, uh, eight or nine people at Webfoot, mm-hmm. um, and we're I'm trying to we're restructuring so I hopefully end up managing five or six. Um, but the thing that I've always and I try like my currently like my biggest obsession is. I have to make sure that I don't become the bottleneck of our marketing department as we grow. And sure. which means that the people that I'm managing right now need to, they first of all need to be like, they need to become and think and solve, pro- solve problems like I do. But if we continue to grow, they're going to have to be better than I currently am. And I need to, you know, also elevate my uh, management ability. And it seems like, as you go up in management and you're working with higher and higher level people, it you start to just go more towards that coaching side of the question asking. But the I guess the specific question I have, which is totally like selfish for because I'm I'm curious what you would tell someone in my situation that is trying to become a better manager. When do you and I guess my this comes with the assumption that management is less question asking and coaching is more question asking. That's kind of how I'm setting it up in my mental map here. When do you manage versus coach somebody? Because it seems like a good manager would also be a good coach. But it's all like in the business world, is there times where you just need to give someone like marching orders, like you need to do this versus just you know asking the questions that potentially could take longer and you don't have time or you know if that makes any sense sure a great question it's a question i get asked often actually um and jim collins has some great wisdom around this he talks about if you're that management is babysitting and if you feel the need to babysit and you're in that management role you've probably made a hiring mistake Uh, but to me you manage numbers you lead people and when it comes to organizational growth, your role as a leader in that organization is to replicate, to multiply uh, the good in an organization, the good in an individual to leverage their skill set. And, and what's the challenge for most leaders that I see organizationally is they want to go fast. And so they shortcut that by telling people what to do removing the the space for collaboration and individual buy-in. Covey said it best, you can buy a man's back, but you can't buy his heart. And so where I see managers and leaders making mistakes is they're trying to go too fast. And we're in a market that is moving very fast. And so the rule is slow down to speed up. Well, when it feels really slow for you as a manager, because you're managing to numbers, you're missing the opportunity to slow down, to, to speed up and actually accelerate the results. And that slowed down movement or that, that time and space that you must afford your team is really getting to know each team member, understand where their strengths and weaknesses are, work with them on a development plan, give them opportunities to make mistakes, to find wins, to own the process. And so there's, there's a difference between responsibility and accountability. As a manager or leader, you have responsibility to the growth 
of an organization and you have a responsibility to lead those in your charge um, as a point of accountability that's where you have to be willing to, to put that back across the table there's a great book called multipliers and it, it talks about being a multiplier or a diminisher as a manager and leader and we want to be multipliers within our organization. We hire people with greater skill sets than us. I mean, if it's all about you and, and your level of control as a manager, you will be the roadblock. You just mentioned that, Chris, that uh, your organization will only be as great as what you can produce individually. And oftentimes you'll be bogged down, your team will be frustrated because you haven't got out of the way. And so one of the ways to get out of the way is to actually lead and take a step back, stop babysitting, stop micromanaging, start engaging people on their terms and on their values so that they can start to find pathways for growth and contribution. The other thing that I find often is organizations are uh, still playing in a lot of the old habits of the industrial age. They've adopted some mindsets from that and that produced a silent generation that stopped asking questions uh, that just showed up to work, punched the clock, went home, uh, we have emerging generations that are coming into the workforce that have not been led well in their lives. And I'm not going to say that as an absolute across the entire uh, demographic, but they're finding that accountability is a new thing for them and that they haven't experienced leadership that engages in some candid conversations, some feedback, some feed forward, uh, team accountability, and measuring against a scorecard or measuring against a, a specific outcome. And so some of these skill sets are new and oftentimes our progress in life, these things are intuitive to us as managers and leaders, but they may not be intuitive to our team. So helping them know how you think or, or challenging them and how they think and learning how they think. It just, and again, I just put this rule out there, slow down to speed up, really spend the time with your people to develop them help them participate in the business. And sometimes that level of participation is on the gains and losses of a business financially. Uh, you might think that that seems counterintuitive. Why would I let my team participate in the losses? I can see why I might let them participate in the gains, but skin in the game is a big deal for people. When they feel like they're a part of something, when they feel like their decisions matter, when they feel like their choices have an impact, it's amazing what happens with teams and, and how fast they start to move based on that common connection and common alignment. Um, interesting. When you say participate in the losses, um, is there, I mean, when you say gains and losses, I'm just thinking like bonuses that are tied to financial performance of the company. Is that participating in the losses or is there another way that that could play out besides you know, not getting something that you would have gotten had you hit the, the financial revenue target or whatever. Yeah. I think of, you know, if, if you go through tough times as an organization and you're having to trim back uh, expenses, you're having to reduce workload, you're, you know, moving out of a market. There's a number of different events that can happen as you're trying to right size a business to market decrease. Uh, that might mean some high flexibility. It might mean that all of a sudden you have a workforce that's not able to um, enjoy the benefit that they've been consistently accustomed to. And so what is that group flex? And I know Simon Sinek talks a lot about this in his book, Leaders Eat Last. And when there's loss, it's interesting to see how teams come together to sacrifice in those times of loss. Where are they willing to make personal sacrifices and bend and shape to find the valley and to, to build from that valley together? And so the gains are always out there. It's always an opportunity. But when times become tough, does it become an event that actually separates a team, that creates some, some hierarchy, that creates this siloed? Uh, organization that some benefit and some lose, does it create a, a place where they can continue to coexist and 
build together. And so I think on the losses, it's a team coming together to say, hey, we don't have the money to afford what we once afforded. We don't have the money to pledge to certain things. Maybe we're losing our insurance or maybe we're we're stepping away from a, a profit share or whatever it might be. Having that conversation, what does that mean for us? Mm. What do we need to do with that? How do we work through that as a team? And how do we share in that in that case, how would we share in that loss or how would we share in that takeaway or something that we we no longer can afford as an organization? And that becomes a very interesting conversation. And it's one that in business often isn't had. It's usually had at the executive level. It's and had they at the owner level. Yeah. yeah, and they just push it down. And so there's not this, again, it's, it's not a collaborative model. It's not something that engages people around a solution. It just, it it gives them kind of tangent um, tangent impact based on decisions that are now being made without their involvement. So they've moved from participation to non-participation. They've moved from engaged and collaborative to silent and unengaged. And now all of the stories that start to spin up from that space mm. and the beliefs and the assumptions can really fracture an organization. Mm. Um, no, I completely agree with that. I think, uh, I guess this is making me think some of these conversations are in the examples that we're talking about with like just hardships in a business and having to scale back or adjust targets because the market's changing or whatever it is. One question off of this is as a manager, um, when I'm trying to really understand my people, is it more important to or how many of these conversations are individual versus group stuff. So, and I'm part of me, I don't know if this is the right train of thought, but I'm thinking of like team building exercises to strengthen the entire team. But when, or is it easy to, is there like some rules or guidelines on when you want to have individual one-on-one conversations with the people you're managing versus getting everybody together and, trying to like make sure that not only does the manager know what really drives the individual, but that that individual's coworkers also understand that as well. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. I think within an organization, depending on the organizational structure and, you know, direct reports and who you're specifically responsible for as a leader in an organization, you're responsible for all the people that you serve. And that is, you know, even with, a typical corporate hierarchy of top-down management, some of the things we hear. Uh, where I, I always advise my clients, err on the side of more communication than less, especially when times are, are more uh, variable or stressed. We tend to hold back and communicate less. And so the traditional model of, hey, I'm going to do an annual review and that's where I'm going to have a one-on-one uh, with my managers or my team leads or individuals that I'm responsible for, I would recommend once a quarter at minimum. And those one-on-ones are really, they're shaped in a couple of different ways. Uh, there's a question set that can go with that. And it's really a question that the leader asks their team member, the people that they serve, a few different things. One is, what can I be doing more of, less of, and the same in re- in regards to helping them achieve their goals and helping them perform the tasks and duties at hand? And so a lot of times we think that the review is, hey, I'm going to go in and I'm just going to tell this person what either they're doing a good job or a bad job, and I'm going to give them some guidance and direction around that. Uh, these are collaborative interactions. Uh, the other thing, there's a very powerful uh, question that I've shared on my podcast a few times that comes from uh, Dr. Randy Ross that wrote a book called Relationomics. And the question, he, he refers to it as the poor man's 360. And the question is, what's it like being on the other side of me? Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes managers and leaders, it's a their engagement or their review or their dialogue with their team is all about their team and how do they get their team to perform better and very few times is it about how do i how do i lead more effectively the other thing that's crucial for a leader to get to know about their team is what are the, what are the individual values 
or sets of values that each team member um, finds as, as high importance in their life. And, you know, we, if we look at the temperament studies, and there's all sorts of, of personality tests and codes and, and different things that can be reviewed. We got Myers-Briggs and Kersey Temperament Sorter and DISC and uh, color code. There's four lenses and uh, lot, lots of other things, uh, bank codes. What it comes down to, though, when it comes to temperament work, there's, there's two rules. We know the golden rule. That's do unto others as you'd have others do unto you. It's all about me, what I want done unto me. The platinum rule states do unto others as they would have done unto them, which means I've got to engage people on their terms and not on my own, which is a challenge for leaders. And that's where organizational maturity comes into play. If I'm an, if I'm an immature organizational leader, everything in my domain is about what I think, what I believe, what's most important to me, and what I want. If I'm a mature organizational leader, I recognize that each of my team members have their own temperament, style, and makeup, and coding that will give an indication of the things in their life, the things they value, the strengths that they have, the things that make them happy and bring them joy, and the last would be uh, the things that they need. So four quick examples of that. If, if I'm somebody that is action-oriented and, and freedom-based, I don't want any fences. I don't like the meetings. I don't like the rules. Give me the reins. Show me the target. Give me competition. Give me give me places where I can be recognized uh, publicly and and be the person in the organization that's you know the, the hot one. And that's one value set. And if that's that value is aligned with the leader, then there's probably going to be a, a great match up there. But we might have somebody that's more blueprint oriented or order and structure oriented where in order for them to go from point A to point B, they have to have a defined path. They're afraid of change, resistant to uh, the lack of structure. And so if I'm a very unorganized and non-structured leader and I've got a team member that values structure and that's what they need to feel safe, we've got to figure something out so that we can both thrive together. What's interesting is those are complementary and supplementary to each other that they can actually feed and serve one another very well, uh, but they also can become like oil and water within an organization. So that's that that maturity check of, am I willing to understand the values of my team, but somebody that values nurturing relationships? Do I understand what that means? Do I understand how I would engage with that person and, and make it meaningful and engaging for them? And if it's somebody that values competency and data and uh, high integrity and time efficiency, it's a different type of conversation there as well. And that happens with our customers also. And if we know that and we value that, and again, if we're mature enough to recognize that my way of being, my insight, my persona is not the only one that exists in the room. The world does not revolve just around me, that the world is made up of a lot of other uh, temperaments and sequencing of temperaments that show up in times of safety and show up in times of, of challenge and stress. And if I understand that and I pledge myself to that, that's where emotional intelligence comes into play. And as a leader, if I can develop those skill sets and make that something that's of high importance and high use within the way that I lead and the way that we work together as a team, now we can drive higher levels of respect and higher levels of understanding and engagement goes up, retention goes up, attrition becomes a non-issue, and now all of a sudden we're moving together and we're, we're moving in a way that is uh, it's exciting and it's engaging for each of the individuals. Hmm. There's a book, this is kind of, it's making me think of this, there's a book by uh, Matthew Kelly called Dream Manager. Have you ever heard of this? I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. So my, uh, it's a fictional story, but the, and in the end, he explains that it's not about, and there's this company, this fictitious company that is having crazy turnover problems and they hire a dream manager who's basically like a life coach inside the business. And everybody gets to meet with this person quarterly, you know, make a bucket list or their dreams of what they want to accomplish. And then the dream manager helps them come up with a plan to execute this. And this is something that's paid for by the business. 
So, you know, it's just crazy. Like you're like, okay, that sounds like a utopia. Isn't that awesome? And then he, he, at the end, he says, it's not about whether or not your business actually hires a dream manager, but it's acknowledging that each and every one of you can or has the opportunity to be a dream manager for your, you know, direct reports, your spouse, your kids, you know, friends, whatever, but just encouraging people to, to like go towards their dreams. One of the activities though, and this is, I'm curious if you, cause I thought of this, I was like, I want to do this with my team, but then I'm also like, is this just a terrible idea? Is you basically give, there's 12 different areas of your life that he suggests that you write down dreams and it's like financial health, like geographic traveling, um, could be career goals, and I don't remember all 12, but you give everyone these prompts, everyone writes down and brainstorms on their own, you know, as many dreams as you can think of, and they can be really simple ones or ones that could take your entire life to accomplish. Um, but then you get together and everyone just shares their dreams of what they want to do. Completely outside of most of these would probably be completely unrelated to the business. But does that seem like a, I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Because I've thought, first of all, you have to make sure that the group is like prepared and understands the broader purpose of why we're doing this. But there are things about that that I think sound really cool. But then there's other parts where I'm like, would this, if it's not presented or, or guided well, it could just be a complete waste of time or not do what you want it to do, which is bring the team together. And in my opinion, kind of open everybody's eyes up to we all have things that exist and lives outside of this business and this business should serve those lives and like accomplishments and the things that we're striving for. So it's good to know that your coworker, Sally wants to go to Hawaii with her husband at some point in the next, you know, five years. And then my thought is if I know that that's Sally's dream, when she actually goes to Hawaii for two weeks, I'm not bitter that she's gone and off vacationing while I'm, you know, shouldering the load. I'm excited for her because this is a dream that she set out to accomplish five years ago. You know, I don't know if that makes sense, but in theory, it sounds good. I'm just wondering if you would say, I don't know, I'd adjust this or that or or whatever. Yeah, the coach in me would would ask you a follow up question, and that is, what's what's giving you this sensitivity or this this holdback? But I've seen this play out in in real life um and i've seen it in on two different ends of the spectrum again oftentimes uh, a team based on their experience with leadership will either feel comfortable or not comfortable sharing their dreams and so the exercise can be interesting you might see some people hold back i think the real challenge is to get people to dream i think as a society we don't dream like like what we could or or what we should. I think the big things that happen in this world are from the dreamers, the people that are pursuing massive things. If you look at space travel, it isn't even something that anybody would have thought was possible. It was preposterous. And for somebody to have a dream to do that, you look at the Wright brothers and and flying as as a dream and something that they were so committed to and passionate about. I love what Simon Sinek talks about he says people don't care what you do there they care why you do it and so the example that you gave about somebody from your team wanting to go to hawaii that's always been their dream and when they achieve that dream there's a level of excitement that maybe i help play a part in them getting there i can celebrate with them i think that's that's a way of being as a team when you look at each other's dreams and you see how important they are for the individual and you continue to challenge them to think bigger and to to grow and express what happens is oftentimes in an organization there's a level of narcissism that exists in leadership that believes your dreams are good to the extent that it helps me achieve my dreams but if your dreams are bigger than that and they can't be achieved here then i've got this weird weird thing happening where I don't like the fact that you're dreaming. I don't like the fact that you might not be a part of this team in perpetuity. And so we get a fix that our service to our team must be accompanied by an expectation that they serve us. And as long as they're serving us and my dream, I'm good. When they stop serving me and they start serving their dream, they're no longer good. I don't want them around. They shouldn't be a part of this team. And so that's the that's the ugly side of this. 
And based on the way that your organization uh, exists and the culture that's there, is it a culture that truly engages in people's lives and cheering them on in, in the big dreams that they have? even if they don't exist or that they're not party to the current operation and their place of employment. And we, we get so affixed on that, that that's, again, I, 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 the, if I gave any caution, it would be evaluate yourself as a leader first. Am I okay to hear the things that my team dreams about? And am I willing to do something to help them move towards their dreams? Am I okay if they're pursuing some of their dreams and am i okay if that means that they leave the company at some point no longer serve my dream yeah that's some heavy reflection as a leader and so don't go into that exercise if you're if you've got a level of narcissism that exists that that says if i i'm only going to serve them as long as they're serving me tony robbins said trade your expectation for appreciation and your whole world change that's that's the thing that exists sometimes in that corporate space. And it's not even necessarily corporate. It can exist in small businesses and it can, it can exist in your house, in your own home and in your relationships. And so a high point of evaluation that if you have expectations and the expectation is that you can dream as long as it supports my dream, but don't dream too big and don't dream to the expense of me, that's, uh, that's where I would caution it. Mm, that's good. And it, I would say is, and I just want your opinion. Do you agree that the better way to exist as a leader or to accomplish great things in life, uh, it's a wise decision to be the latter of those, or I think it was the latter, the, the, like, yes, I, I am okay with the reality that their dream may not serve me. And I want to be known as somebody that, like, oh, just go work for Chris. If you work for him for a year, you're gonna like you'll get ten times closer to the stuff you want in life because like it seems like you would just attract better people if the word could get out that that's the type of person or business as a whole, if you could affect your whole business, because you're excited when your employee goes to start a company on their own instead of being like, oh, I knew I knew that person was gonna leave. I shouldn't have, you know, shouldn't have hired him. It's like that's ridiculous. Yeah. There's certainly a cost and expense that goes to that, but this kind of comes back to living true uh, for me. How would I, if I were in that situation and I went and pledged my my time and resources to somebody else's dream, um, am I going to grow in that process? And is it something that is also going to benefit my time and, and space? And so as leaders, when we when we work with others, we don't know the impact that we're going to have. That impact may not be immediate. It may not impact your organization the way that you thought it would, but you're, you're always planting seeds. You're always mentoring somebody, cheering them on, looking for ways to serve them in their life. And as they progress in their life, did they, did they gain something through their association with you and your team? Did it improve their life in some way? And if it improved their life and it gave them new skill set, new perspective, something, you know, were they led well or were they managed? Was it something that they can look back with fondness and say, that was a huge stepping stone for me in my life and my career and, and towards my goals? Or do they want to block it from their memory and, and erase it if, if they could? And so, again, how do we serve people? I, I think some of the great companies, the great organizations across the world are ones that they get their people dreaming they have mutual support to help people achieve those dreams they're not attached to the service that they provide and they're looking for ways to improve somebody's life and have an impact and influence for me leadership if i was going to define it leadership is having impact and influence and we can either have impact and influence for good or for bad it's our choice but uh, i hope that leaders are looking at their stewardship as a leader, that they're responsible to take care of the people that are in their charge, to help them grow and progress, not just at work, but in their life, through their example, through their way of being and what they, how they engage that human being. Um, that's what I want 
from the people that I engage with, the clients that I work with. I always want to leave better than I started. And I also want people to leave better than they started in the collaboration that we have together. Mm. This is sound or this is reminding me of the other, um, I'm going to call it a mantra or slogan sounds too cheap. I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. Another slogan of arts, uh, which is the, the honor, the gift, which is this uh, idea that you have uh, mentioned a lot in your podcast and you've created some books on this. But you, one of the things about that is on the, how we honor the gift of choice will shape the eternities. Um, and when you say, if I'm not mistaken, when you say honor the gift, the gift is choice. And you're saying that if we honor that, or I mean, I guess we are, we choose to honor or not, or how we do is going to shape thing, the eternities for better or for worse. Is that correct? Yeah. Or could you expand on that? Certainly. Uh, yeah. Honor the gift. Um, it's maybe a little tagline that I've, I've used to identify my podcast and some of the other things that I do. But I believe that the greatest gift in our lives that we've each been given, and it's something that nobody can take away from us, and that's the gift of choice. Now, we may do things that limit our options and limit our choices, but at the end of the day, we have, we have this thing between our ears that's called our brain, and we see things, we experience things in our life, and we get to choose what we're going to think about that experience, what type of meaning we're going to give it, what feelings we're going to adopt, or continue to foster, and then certainly the actions or reactions we might take along that storyline that we're creating. And so choice is such a powerful thing. And when I say it has the potential of impacting the eternities, every choice that we make, we're faced with thousands of choices every day. Choice to honor the people that we serve has an impact in their lives that has the potential to impact the lives of those that they might serve in the future, the families that they're raising. And it has this ripple effect through time that if I made a choice today, do I know what impact that choice will have a hundred years from now, a hmm. thousand years from now? And I don't think we often think about that. And even the choice to, to smile at somebody on the street, we have no idea what they're going through. If we had an inclination to be kind, did that perpetuate and move through? And the other thing I believe about the gifts that we have in our life, the talents that we have, they're not for us. They're for us to use in the service of others. And it's different than the, the worldly gifts that we think about. Somebody buys you a, you know, a Christmas gift or, or you know, gives you a, a token of their appreciation and we think, cool, this is mine. I'm going to use it and play with it. And it's going to be the thing that I have that's mine. And I believe that the gifts, the attributes that we have in our life, the skill sets that we develop, the opportunities that we have are not just for us in that moment, but they're for us to use. Uh, there's this great mantra of watch one, do one, teach one. Something I've tried to live my life by is, and that is, when I see something that resonates with me, that makes sense, that adds value to my life, that I can't just hold on to that. It would have zero value if, it, if I couldn't give that to somebody else to also add value in their life. And so in honoring that gift of, of knowledge and experience and inspiration, whatever it might be, I play with it, I use it but I got to give it away and I've got to take what I've learned from that and, and, and share that with the world. And so those choices to honor those gifts, the choices to, to honor the inclinations that we have to slow down, to speed up, to assume innocence, all these, all these choices that we're given, they can impact generations beyond generations. And that's the power I believe that each of us have that if we will own the choices that we make, not only can it impact our lives, but it, it can impact lives beyond measure and beyond our purview. Mm. That's awesome. So a couple wrap-up questions here. Uh, you mentioned a couple books on um, so far, which I wrote down, but in general, are there any um, books that stand out above the rest? Or another way I like thinking of this is 
Are there any books that you have gifted or recommended more than others? Um, and what are those? Yeah. Um, if I look at, like I've got a top 10 list of books that have impacted my life that I'd recommend for anybody. Um, and then I'm always reading. I, I tried to pace myself a little bit differently this year to be more intentional in my reading. But my top 10 list, High Performance Habits by Brendan Burchard, uh, Rules for a Night by Ethan Hawke, Leaders Eat Last, I mentioned that by Simon Sinek. Uh, the Arbinger Institute has a great book called The Anatomy of Peace. Uh, Dr. David Emerald, a good friend of mine, wrote a, a fantastic book and tale called The Power of Ted that deals with the empowerment dynamic and the opposite side of drama. Uh, Robin Sharma is one of my favorite authors. Uh, my number six spot for top 10 books is The Saint, The Surfer, and The CEO. Uh, Jim Collins, How the Mighty Fall. It's maybe one of his less popular books. Uh, Good to Great was one that really put him on the map and and built to last. But the the tale of of demise that comes in How the Mighty Fall is such a fantastic book of cautionary tales and, and ways to evaluate how you know the same ego that exists in times of success is the same ego that will justify your way out of loss and justify your way into poor decisions. So uh, that that's my number seven uh, book, How the Mighty Fall. Number eight is The Motivation Manifesto, again, by Brendan Burchard. Uh, number nine is The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And for a business owner looking at finite versus infinite and the variation between that and how that shows up in leading an organization is powerful, powerful book. And then the number 10 book for me uh, it's a book that I read a number of years ago that uh, helped restore some relationships for me and, and brought some things into focus that were a little bit more meaningful. It's a book called The Christmas Sweater by Glenn Beck. So those are that's my top 10, and, and there's a lot of other books that uh, kind of hit honorable mention, and I've got some that I spend daily time on. Uh, but, yeah, for me, readers, readers are leaders. Uh Leaders are learners, constantly investing yourself into uh, development, learning from other people's experience, their perspectives, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Uh, Carol Dweck wrote a great book called the uh, um, about mindset. Mm -hmm. And we've either got a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And that's what's interesting about life. We know when we're growing and challenging ourselves, and we also know when we're completely stagnant or not growing and mm. again that faces that, that provides us a choice and what are we going to do with that choice so totally um what's your favorite movie my favorite movie oh my gosh I, I like so many movies in so many different genres but uh some of the movies that come up well actually my all-time favorite i do have an all-time favorite it's called fire with fire and it's an old movie from the 80s, and uh, just it's one that is really cool. But uh, some of the honorable mentions, Tombstone, Top Gun, um, Tommy Boy. There's, God, there's so many great movies out there. This is, this is interesting. So uh, I'm a big numbers guy, the engineering side of me. You, I, I'm really big on IMDb ratings. Yeah. So I have this arbitrary metric that I've kind of tested through the years and asking people. Yeah. Um, but a seven point three on IMDb is like the level that I will like. Yeah. If someone makes a recommendation, it's that's like going to be a good movie. If it's below a seven point three, though, it's not that it's a bad movie. It's just statistically much more unlikely that I would like the movie, or just like the general public would like it. Yeah. Um. And this movie that you recommended happens to be a 5.6, which means that I have to do, go to my second rule, which is everybody gets a mulligan to use. <laughs> yeah. 
So you could choose to use your mulligan and say, yes, Chris, I think I think you should watch this movie. It's it is better than or I mean, it, it deserves a higher rating than a five point six, which and again, that seven point three just means you could basically tell anybody to watch it and they would say it's worth their time. I don't think it would be worth everybody's time. It's something that resonated <laughs> with me personally. I liked it. It would be so cheesy now for people to watch, but I still I still enjoy it. I think uh man. Because the funny thing is, like, I ask people these movie recommendations, and it's very, like, everyone has the easy, popular one that they can yeah. mention. But I love finding movies like what you just said that people really like, but they're below the cutoff because those are the ones that nobody knows about, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, anyways, we'll I'll have to check that out. Uh, last question How would you uh, suggest people connect with you um, to uh, get more of art? Sure. Uh, have a podcast. It's on all the major uh, pod players. It's called Honor the Gift Podcast. Uh, you can go search for it there. I'm on Instagram. That's probably where I spend the majority of my social time. Uh, my handle there is at Honor the Gift. On Facebook at Art McCracken. On LinkedIn uh, under my name as well. Do you have a website? Uh, www.choiceisthegift.com. You can certainly come there and and peruse the goods and subscribe if you want to stay connected um, shoot me an email ask for some time but uh, uh, always willing to to spend time and energy uh, helping others so. awesome well i appreciate you coming on today and i really enjoyed our conversation so thank you thanks so much chris great to be on the show